Live from the Coachella Valley, time for another hour of the desert scene, art exhibitions to modernism, music festivals to live theater, big screen, little screen, and very little screen. This is the Culture Corner with Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza. Here's Bonnie and Brian on iHub Radio. And welcome to the Culture Corner. Uh, it's a beautiful day today. Um, we've got a jam-packed show, lots of guests. In fact, uh, Brian's kicking it off with uh, a guest he booked. Tell us about her. Okay, so we have Chella Coleman. She is an activist, a lead singer of the band You Guys Suck Like Real Hard. Shut the F up. A little bit controversial name for a band. <laughs> controversial but. name, but I love it. And so I wanted to go ahead and introduce Chella Coleman. Hi, Chella. How are you doing? Hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. Now, Chella, we just got to get started on here. Let's tell us about your band name. Tell us all about it. Well, um, really quick, um, I was uh, really depressed uh, during the night, and I had a friend who was in another band. Uh, They also have a controversial name. They're called Um, (laughs) FTPS. And uh, they always told me, that if I wasn't to hang out, because I'm always posting about hanging out, like I'm always real and like talking about my uh, my issues that I go through um, on Facebook. And they were like, I see your post. If you ever want to hang out, I have a studio. So that like, you know, just hit me up. And one day I, I uh, was going through a lot. Uh, I went through a, a lot, lot. And um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I self-harmed and um and then I reached out to them, and I was like, yeah, I don't want to be alone. And they were like, well, come through. And I did. Um, they got me a lift. And um, I went. They are like, well, you know how you like uh, listening to rock music? Well, tonight we're going to make rock music. And we started making music. And then um, our last song shut off the power. And then, uh, you know, we did music for a good, let's see, I want to say hour and a half. And at the end of it, um, we like we went outside and there was a note that said, "You guys suck, like real hard." Shut the up, thanks. And we just kind of kept that uh, as an affirmation of ourselves, um, you know, and uh, to show how different we are. And it's very punk. I think it's very punk to use something that someone says, um, you know, in an empowering way. Now I know that in your now that in our conversations you've always said that you wanted to use your music as a form of activism can you tell us more about that like for anyone that doesn't know what your brand of activism is if you don't if you excuse the expression so as a disabled fat black trans woman that lives in skid row on um tongue land right um you know i um i'm very political i've always i've been political for the last uh 11 years, I uh, started doing stuff around student uh, rights, then I went on to uh, trans rights, and through that I started learning about the prison industrial complex, the new Jim Crow, and how we got to where we are today, right? Um, uh, you know, the term intersectionality, which looks at uh, different identities and how they intersect with different oppressions. Um, and so I, you know, I've always been someone that's been like, well, I don't just want to do the normal activism thing. I've always done like art. I've always done theater or comedy. And so when music fell in my lap, it was just, you know, and when people ask me, are you trying to get famous? Like uh, uh, you've asked me that actually. And I'm like, no, I just want to turn race 
gender and class on its head and make people think about um, what they what they perceive as beauty. What they- Chella, are you there? Do we lose her? I think we might have. Chella, if you're not there, we might have to get you back. Mm-hmm. If you hear, I wanted to ask her. her if she felt like she's made any headway in making those changes and with her music. Of course. Let's go ahead and try to get her back okay. real quick. Okay. But meanwhile... Okay, so we've got, and this is great, and we've got a lot of guests, really diverse guests today. We have Chella, and then a little later we're going to talk to Fernfield Brooks, who's a wonderful author. She was a television producer, author. She's got another new book out, many books. Then a little second hour we're talking to my buddy, Siobhan Velarde. We're doing a show, a cabaret show this Saturday, next Saturday, called Bosom Buddies, uh, with Mark Caney on the piano at Runway, which is a wonderful little club in Cathedral City. I'm so, so excited to finally be working with her. We've um, become friends and you know, I've gone to open mics and that kind of thing, but we're finally doing a show together. Excited about that. And then um, our last guest today will be the fabulous, fabulous Ruta Lee, uh, stage of stage screen, star of stage screen television, uh, you know, Hollywood Squares, um, all kinds of seven brides for seven brothers. And she's got a new book out called uh, Consider Your Ass Kissed, which is one of her favorite phrases. I'm looking forward to talking to her. I think we have Chella back. Yes. Chella, hi, this is Bonnie. I have a question for you. Do you feel that you've made some progress in uh, hoping to move forward some of these changes, uh, social changes with your music? Yes, yes. Um, Like, um, you know, like one of the things we've done is uh, during the COVID, um, as someone who is in Skid Row, one of the highest populations of folks that have been impacted through uh, COVID, and seeing um, in LA specifically, there's a lot of land and there's a lot of houses that could be used for housing. And and there's also people that are getting pushed out of their homes, right? Like mm-hmm. right and left, we saw low income brown families, specifically low income brown and black families be- being pushed out of their homes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the mayor here has been like, you know, I'm creating this thing called Operation Room Key but you still go drive through uh, Skid Row or any other neighborhoods and you see that there's more homeless people than there should be, right? Um, Not only that, but he's created more homeless people by criminalizing people who are staying in their homes, rightfully so, when they have two jobs that they've been uh, uh, doing um, as well as taking care of their children and families, right? So, like, um, one of the big things we do, um, we we started to do is... um, because uh, I do other th- types of activism, right? Um, as I blended the two, uh, we would do what I call takeovers, which is we take over a street, right? And um, we play, and we and we challenge, we take over the street either of that council member, uh, of the council member's office, and that's what we did one day. We we actually targeted one a specific council member called Mitchell Farrell, who, um, in the same day, he let black trans people put. Black Trans Lives Matter in Hollywood. That's his uh, jurisdiction. He also, and it was Pride last year, he also pushed out a bunch of homeless folks. So, like, you know, there's a dichotomy there because, like, um, houses folks, when you think about houses folks, the high, one of the highest population besides veterans and moms is LGBT youth, right? LGBT trans and queer youth. And that mainly, impact, mainly impacts trans people of color, right? And so we would just challenge that, and we took over streets, um, you know, demanding justice. I mean, there's, I'm not going to say we've done anything. Um, we just let our presence be known. Our last event we just did was called Defend All Sims, 
which was kind of a celebration of my birthday, right? Because my birthday uh, was passed. And I said, I want to do something. Um, and what we did was uh, we raised money and got um, self-defense kits for women and folks who identified as femme. And we gave hygiene kits for, uh, for men. And, um, and we also took over a street, actually my street where I live. And, um, you know, we played and we gave out these things and I'm still giving these out as a, as a demonstration actually, because <laughs> we have a lot of, uh, tasers and pepper spray for fans. So, yeah. Um, so we've been doing a lot, you know, I do want to acknowledge that we are in a pandemic. And so we have been like, Hey, wear your mask. And also wearing masks is also uh, a good way where you're doing stuff uh, like protests because police do like to try to uh, identify you. So wearing masks and also we have folks uh, going around doing hand sanitizer and we would do like a social distancing as much as we could. Um, so yeah, I think those were really impactful, you know? Hey, Chella, I wanted to ask you, actually, now, I wanted to move to, like, Little Nas X, because me and Bonnie watched the music video, and we, I, we honestly, I loved it, actually. What about you, Bonnie? You know, it's, it's provocative, it's maybe a little controversial, but I've seen other music videos that are probably just as controversial, really, so, I don't know. And I wanted to ask you, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, Little Nas X is, um, I think they've always... I think they've been wanting to stir the pot for a minute. And we can't talk about this art without uh, talk, um, the song without talking about how, number one, queer black art has always been demonized, right? It's always been, like, it's always been, if it's not, if black art isn't supporting the system of white supremacy and, like, let's face it, we live in a Christian nation, right? Like, we can talk about how secular... Yeah, we can talk about the separation of church and state all we want, but we do live in a in a Christian nation, right? Um, and so, like, folks are like scared of something that like looks even remotely satanic. Um, I remember watching Wendy Williams after it came out, and Wendy was like, "I do not even touch anything of the devil. Nope, 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 nope." And it's like, yeah. I also think about, um, you know, the demonizing queerness, right? Like, now, I don't mind demonizing queerness because I, like, I, you know, I'm not Christian, so it, like, fuck that shit. I'm sorry. Screw that stuff. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Screw that stuff. Um, but I, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm very into, like, the Dark Lord, you know, witchcraft, Satanist, like, I'm into those imagery stuff. Um, as long as you're not hurting anyone and you're not hurting yourself, I say go for it. I also think we should um, talk about the fact that uh, Little Mouse X is a black person, right? Mm -hmm. and, so be and so because of that, there's going to be a, lot, a, a microscope on them. Remember when they first came out with O-Town Road and it was all over the country uh, music, uh, you know, stations. And then they take it off because they're like, oh, it's a black man. But it's like, uh, we got to realize that black folks started a, a bunch of this, uh, this music. Um, so I think, it was, I think it's very much a, a, a two-sided thing of queerness and blackness being demonized and being um, 
yeah, being demonized. Now, I wanted to ask you actually about an, your upcoming queer apocalypse events, and I wanted to know what kind of music do you think would you describe that is played at these events? Like, tell us about the music that's that is played, and also what are some expectations that one would have at these types of at queer apocalypse. Well, first and foremost, Queer Apocalypse started as just a way to get my band money, right? Like, I'm poor. I'm not going to say a lot, you know? Um, and, you know, um, so it just started, it started two years and a half ago, two years ago, when we were meeting in real life. And, uh, you know, and I would have not just rock, I would have my friend Keela, who does like soulful pop rock music, I would have my friend T-Rex who does R&B music. I would have Poet. I did a comedy one day. I also opened up with uh, a theatrical artistic piece. Like, it's a bunch of things. And that's also what I, I like to say, flipping the world of cis- cisgender, white, cis normativity on its head, right? Um, just like being there for the uh, artists of color, um, especially black artists. Right, and so yeah, and then during the sh- uh, during the last um, you know during the COVID, we transitioned to doing online stuff. Hey, Chella, um, Chella, I was actually going to say we're about to actually run out of time. We're about to go into commercial. I do apologize, but I wanted to say thank you so much for coming on. Chella. Thank you. Yeah, right. interesting. Very interesting. And I and I yeah, want- you can look us up and follow us on our Instagram pages, Cryptocalypse and. You guys suck like real hard. Shut the <laughs> up, thanks. Okay, we'll check it out. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chella. We'll uh-huh. be right back. You're listening to Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza talking arts and entertainment on iHub Radio's The Culture Corner. Here are Bonnie and Brian. And we're back on the Culture Corner. We've got a little news and the, some sad news. We lost a couple of uh, well-known people recently. Uh, just today or yesterday, uh, Prince Philip, 99. Uh, I, think he's, I think it was 100th birthday is only a couple of weeks away, so he almost made it. But he's been ill for a while. Oh, I think he's actually the most uh, long-lived um, consort for like a queen or something yeah. like that. I yeah. think so. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about Prince Philip is that I think for a lot of people, his legacy is going to be sort of a mixed bag. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be between there. I think a lot of love for him is going to be associated with the queen. Like mm-hmm. if they love the queen, they'll most likely throw him in there. But mm-hmm. I've always saw him as a very private man compared mm-hmm. to her. Yeah. And another thing is that I think his legacy is a little, unfortunately, maybe a little tarnished because of the Meghan Merkel interview yeah. and some of that y- stuff. You know, and I was thinking about this today when I first heard that he passed. Um, I know they're go- it's the funeral's going to be small because it's COVID and not a state thing and all that. But I'm going to be really interested to see. Um, I would be willing to wager that uh, either Harry will come alone or neither of them will come. But I cannot see Meghan Merkel being invited to this funeral. I, I think it would be extraordinarily awkward. I think I think it would be awkward too. I think that that I think it would be one of those, you know, when you have those friends that tell you, "Hey, here's an invite," but they're kind of yeah, giving it to you it, like, "Don't don't really come, don't really yeah, come," yeah. but I'm letting you know that you're invited regardless. Yeah, I, I just can't see that. I mean, I I could see the Queen sending a message to Harry. Look, you know, don't mess this up. Either come by yourself or don't just don't come. 
you know. You know, and and it's possible, and it's possible that maybe Meghan Merkel might show up. But again, it's one of those things where like big mistake. I think it would be a big mistake. I, I think it would be a big mistake, but also because like, you know, he died, and I know, I know, in some ways, she can't really <laughs> anticipate those sort of things. Right. I mean, if you lived until ninety nine, I've seen a lot of celebrities live until one hundred and four. Yeah, uh, like Beverly Cleary, Cleary, who just passed too. Yeah, yeah. children's book writer. She's one hundred three, hundred four, something like 104 that. One hundred and four years yeah. old. So you see a lot of these celebrities yeah. and. It's a good way to transition over to her. Have yeah. you ever read any of those books? You know, I I haven't read, but I because I coach voiceover students. I use some sections from some of her kids' books for children's book scripts that I work on with my voiceover students. Oh, so, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Why, uh, why do you pick those books exactly? Well, I I find stuff when I look. I just find sections of whether it's adult books or ch- kids' books that a section that kind of stands on its own that makes mm-hmm. sense as a couple paragraphs, and that just is interesting and uh, tells a story. Maybe has dialogue, and it's just an, because there's certain paragraphs that you'd have you have to have some before or after but if you find a couple paragraphs that kind of stand on their own that's what you look for okay i was gonna say because her books they're really easy to read because i i bought some the other day because i thought you know what i haven't read those books since elementary school mm-hmm. and some and i just got done with a children's literature course mm-hmm. and when i was looking at them they're relatable mm-hmm. to children and yeah. i think that that was one of the main reasons people were so hooked on those books and i think that i saw an interview on um cbs i think where a bunch of contemporary authors talk about how wonderful she is and Mm -hmm. how like her books actually spoke to real children and that they were not ideal idealized children Mm -hmm. or like well-behaved kids that they were actually you know they threw temper they had flaws and stuff yeah yeah and i think that that's if you're a great writer a great writer can tell great stories with idealized characters, but mm-hmm. I think another type of great writer is a great, is great at writing flawed people yeah. and making it relatable. Absolutely. And yeah. another person that's a writer that passed away is Anne Betts. She is a head writer, one of the original head writers for Saturday Night, Night Live. Live. Yeah, wow. And, you know, it's one of those things, and she was also... She was also a part of National Lampoon. She okay. actually contributed her dark sense of humor to the work. So in many ways, like if you ever see anything pretty dark mm-hmm. in National Lampoon it's or SNL, her. that yeah. was probably her. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people see her as a pioneer because she was one of the very few women on not only National Lampoon, but SNL. Mm-hmm. Because of that, she went on to be nominated for an Emmy five times, winning once. Mm-hmm. And she won a Writers Guild Award and created Square Pegs oh, okay. with Sarah Jessica Parker, which surprisingly, surprisingly, that show has a legacy, even though it lasted one season. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, you know, it just for me, it sort of speaks to me like whenever I see like a woman, when I hear about a woman who was a pioneer at her time, it's like, Geez, it's great that so many shows, you know, had a woman behind it because it sort of shows that like we were getting to a point where we're starting to highlight that yeah. instead of ignoring yeah. it. You know what I mean? And uh, as I understand, I know it's getting better, but as I understand it, comedy writing, uh, television comedy writing in Hollywood for years was a really totally male dominated. It was really hard for women to kind of break in. I know Tina, Tina Fey did. She was did some writing. But I still think that's it's. it's 
uh, still a little bit of a struggle, I think, from what I understand, for women to break into comedy writing, particularly. It's it's to a point where I think a lot of times they still have to kind of announce that women are pioneering it rather Mm -hmm. than it being the norm, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm hoping it gets to be a norm to the point that it's like, oh, you know, it's that it's that woman again writing that story. And it's great. And but I think in some cases in the time of like Ann Betts, like she SNL was mostly performer driven where mm-hmm. the people where we weren't really thinking about who was writing behind it and i think a lot of times we give lauren michaels a little bit more credit yeah than some than he might deserve honestly yeah. on that case yeah because i think there were probably a lot of well, you can research there's a lot of writers that have contributed over the years of to course. that stuff lots and lots of yeah. course and yeah. you know what i gotta say rest in peace beverly yes. clearly and Beth prince philip prince philip yeah well <laughs> it, it, i'm it, gonna be interesting to see what happens about the funeral i'm being oh, we'll, very interested to see that we'll have to cover that but yeah. we'll be right back on the culture corner right. with some more guests stay tuned The curtain rises on local and regional arts and entertainment. From music to theater, films to fine art, it's The Culture Corner. Get connected. Call 760-544-TALK. That's 760-544-8255. Here's Bonnie and Brian on iHub Radio. And we're back on the Culture Corner, and I'm really thrilled to uh, welcome our next guest, uh, Fernfield Brooks, a multi-talented woman, had a long career, I think, in television producing and lots and lots of writing, and she's got a new book out, Destiny's Children, a Cat Meow Moir. I love that. Uh, so, hi, Fern, how are you? I'm okay. Thank you so much for doing this. This is a new this is a new one for me. I'm sitting in my car in a parking lot in Marina Del Rey. Well, you you know what? You sound great. Your sound's coming through loud and clear. So, so tell us about this book. This sounds like so much fun. Tell tell us how how well, you came up with this. It is. It's um, it's really a trilogy. The first book is out. They call me Destiny, which was the first year that this little orphaned kitten became part of our lives. And basically, she and I saved each other. She became my alter ego. She, of course, thought we humans were really very strange. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, when she would look at me with this look, uh, are you really going to do that? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it was great. We spent 13 years together. And the trilogy is uh, book one is They Call Me Destiny, which is the first year she spent with us. Destiny's Children spans from actually 1963 to 72, and she uh, she met her soulmate, Dimitri, and had seven kittens. Wow. And at one point, we were living on Sutton Place uh, in Manhattan with eight cats. And uh, in 72, then we I moved to California, which she thought was the craziest thing I had done yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that book three will be out probably at the beginning of next year, and it's called Destiny Moves to La La Land. Excellent. And now Destiny is is still with us? Yes. No, no, we're yeah. no, we're it's it's a period piece. It's a view of the '60s from the point of view of Destiny. Oh, okay. It's really quite interesting. Okay, and so now tell us, you've written a number of books. This is this is not your first series of books, correct? It, it's not my first book. My first book, 
which came out in hardcover in Japan, Canada, the United States, is titled Letters to My Husband. And they're letters that I wrote to my husband after he passed away. And the book is still helping people to this day. And because of COVID-19 and the fact that so many of us have lost people without having an opportunity to say goodbye, which is what happened to me. My husband, we were on vacation in New York, and he died in the middle of the night. So I am making making the book available to anybody who asks for it, because it is really still helping people survive the loss of a loved one. Oh, that's great. uh, It's amazing. It's been doing this for more than 20 years, and just the other day, uh, I got um, an email from somebody saying, oh, my God, this helped when nothing else did. Wow. Isn't that a, that must be a, such a gratifying feeling for you. To, I mean, we all everybody, you know, wants fame and fortune, all that. But to do something like that, that's really helping other people, that, that's got to be a pretty special feeling, I would guess. Well, it is. It's very special. And uh, it's funny because, you know, I started in the business working uh, for Norman Lear's company. And just the other day, I was talking to a friend of mine, and then I wrote to Norman, because I realized that uh, when I moved to California back in 1975, I happened to get a job at Norman Lear's Tandem Productions. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that if I had gotten that job anyplace else, my life might have been entirely different, because working with Norman Lear, I was able, by, by coincidence, by chance, my whole life is by accident, uh, we we got involved in the disability community, and we literally changed our industry's perception of people with disabilities. And the first movie that I did was a short titled The Different Approach, which was a comedy musical, very, very um, avant-garde for that time. Mm-hmm. And we got nominated for an Oscar. Wow. So it, it was just, you know, it, it, it's funny how things in your life Uh, affect you and if you make the right choices and just see things through uh, it's amazing what can happen and the difference that somebody can make so you were you were working as a producer or associate producer whatever for for Norman Lear no I started I started as a secretary to the executive producer of Maud okay and everything else happened by accident because we did an episode on Maud where she goes back to a college reunion and her roommate best friend played by Nanette Fabray, is in a wheelchair because she's had a stroke. Mm. And, and uh, Bea, you know, Maud is very uncomfortable about it. And finally, uh, her friend confronts her and she says, you know, you, I scare the daylights out of you. And Bea had to say, yes, you do. And the, the impact of that episode was so, uh, so strange and, and, and strong that Norman came to my boss and they started talking about developing a sitcom for, uh, with, you know, disabled people on the assembly line. And Rod Parker, my boss, told me, find me one. And that research led me by accident to this South Bay Mayor's Committee, a volunteer committee, and I got involved in a long story, but we, uh, we, I and, and uh, I got my partner, a comedy writer, Jim Belcher, and uh, we made this short, which was very, very disrespectful and whatever. Today it would be okay, but in, in 1978 it was groundbreaking, mm-hmm. and uh, we were nominated for an Oscar. That was the first thing I ever did. 
and from then on, and I kept everything kept happening by accident. Um, it's too long to go into for your show, but uh, when Maud went off the air, I was out of work, and I was, uh, you know, be- between jobs. And then we had a screening of the film, and and Norm, everybody came. Of course, we were like a family in those days. Mm-hmm. And Norma went back to the office and said, "How come she's still not with this company?" because Maud had gone off the air and there were no openings. Mm-hmm. So they called me and asked me to be in, in development, and that led to something else. And uh, I became, I, I couldn't find a producer because uh, Norman had found an idea he wanted to do, which was for syndication, and I, couldn't, I didn't know where to look for a producer. So finally Norman got tired of asking me, did you find one? I said, not yet. He said, well, I think you should produce it. That was my first TV producing job. Wow. wow. And, and I'm probably the only person on the planet who told Norman Lear that we had script problems when Norman Lear was the writer. Wow. And that was the whole other... <laughs> how did, how other did he thing. take that? He was wonderful, but, you know, I, wrote, I went home, I wrote him a letter that started out, I know that you know how hard it is to have to say that we have script problems when mm. the writer is Norman Lear. Yeah. It's a little bit like telling Michelangelo the Sistine Chapel needs retouching. Yes, yes. And, and, I, and I wrote it, and I came in figuring I've just had the shortest career, producing career in the history of television. I put the letter on his desk, and I went to my office waiting to be fired. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he says, listen, Fern, you know, you know, and I not only like you, I respect you, I love you, and I'll just keep rewriting until we're all happy with this. Wow, that's great. Yeah, he, he strikes, I mean, I don't know him personally at all, but just to the interviews I've seen, he strikes me as a really interesting, uh, yeah, good, good people, you know, besides he, being... He, yeah. is, he, he is amazing, and the only reason that I was able to do so many things that touched people's lives was because Norman never said no, wow. <laughs> you know. I said, Norman, will you be in this film? He said, it's fine, goodbye. And then all I had to say, you know, I could call anybody. I could say, Norman, Lear's going to be in our movie. Would you, would you join him? And who's going to say, say no? Say no, right, exactly. So what, what brought you to the desert? How did you come out here? Well, um, I thought back in 2000, um, I, was, I had been a network executive. I've had, I've had a lot of different jobs in the industry, and I thought, you know, I'm done with the industry. I'm finished. Uh, somebody laughed. They said the only thing I had to do to get a job was say I'm going to the desert to write. So mm-hmm. I did. I thought I was finished with it. So mm-hmm. I, I sold my condo in Marina del Rey, and I started building a house in the desert. Mm-hmm. And two weeks later, I got offered a full-time job <laughs> in L.A. Wow. Wow. Uh, so, and that was... And that was uh, back in 2000 and one thing led to another and every time i thought i was done the last thing was monk i said i'm going to the desert to write that was about 2001 and my friend uh, called me to be uh, to to produce the first season and then it went on for eight seasons wow so uh i kept going back and forth and finally uh, i realized that maybe i was too far from my family and everybody mm-hmm. So I sold the house in 2017, and uh, and now everybody I know is trying to figure out where's a good place to go to wind up you know, yeah. a life and a career. 
My goodness. Well, uh, now, so where can people get the get the book? Can they get it at a local bookstores, well, Amazon? It's not out yet. It's not, it's okay. not out yet. It will be published on um, May 9th, which is Mother's Day, in honor of Destiny's motherhood. Okay. And they can they can actually they can email me if they're interested. It's fernfieldbrooks at gmail dot com, which is easier than the publishing company. And um, they can stay tuned, and it's going to be on sale with an insider price for your listeners and, and other uh, other interview and bloggers. It'll be on sale through my uh, Books to Cherish, which is books and then the number two and then cherish um, dot com, and it'll be ten dollars. And you'll probably, you know, they'll be hearing about it. They can call me or email me fernfieldbrooks at gmail dot com. And I look forward to it. And if anybody is, has suffered the loss of a loved one, please ask me for a copy of Letters to My Husband. It will help, I promise you. I, I always like to ask, when we have a couple minutes left, I always like to ask writers, Do you are you someone who sits down and says, okay, today I'm going to write from you know 10 to 1, or do you wake up in the middle of the night, or, or both? No, I'm always, you know, I'm always getting uh, ideas in my head 24-7. And I have not, because I'm, you know, I used to make my husband crazy because I multitask. And there are always so many different things going on in my life. So I haven't been able to say, okay, from 6 o'clock in the morning until 12 noon, I'm going to write. But once I get started, you know, then I could go until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. But like the other day, I was thinking about book three in the trilogy, and I saw this picture which it was just p- perfect for it and I thought oh my god that's my last that's the last beat of the last book in the trilogy and I love it and I told my book designer Deborah McCormick and she loved the idea she laughed so you know I've got the end of the book already the end of the trilogy and that came to me you know just as I was doing something else yeah and so after this trilogy I'm sure you probably have several other ideas kicking around in your head for future books well, I'm working, I have been working on it for a long time, but I think the timing is right now, and it's called, the title is Producers Don't Cry. And I love it. And it's about my, all my experiences in the business, yeah. which all happened by accident. Yeah. Well, Fern Field Brooks, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to have to check this book out. This sounds like such fun, and I know a lot of people that are really cat, cat lovers, I'm going to have to get for them. And also letters to my husband. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, send me your address. I'll send you the book. All right. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Really appreciate it. Congrats thank on the book. You. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. All right. We'll be back with more on the Culture Corner in just a bit. Listening to Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza talking arts and entertainment on iHub Radio's The Culture Corner. Live from the desert cities of Southern California, here's Brian and Bonnie. On this segment of The Culture Corner, we're going to get into some more news. Actually, we forgot to mention in terms of celebrity deaths, Midwin Charles. Yeah, so sad. Too young. 47 or whatever. Yeah. 47 years old. She was a CNN illegal analyst and she was the person personally 
named in an interview by Alex Trebek to replace him That's on who he Jeopardy. wanted, yeah. So it's a real tragedy because, yeah. like, who knew? So yeah. abrupt. 47 years old and... And no, I think no cause of death has been listed yet, but... Um, no. And it's also, like, when you saw her on the news last time, seemed pretty normal. Yeah. Like nothing was happening. Yeah. She was le- a legal, I think she was a lawyer, legal analyst. She was on MSNBC, on Rachel, and on uh, Joy Reid's shows. And very, very bright woman. Yeah, it's very sad. Very sad. Uh, tr- it's a real tragedy. And, you know, I guess it opens up the, I think, a lot of people were kind of thinking that she might replace uh, Alex Trebek. But I guess, you know. Well, now she's uh, not. Now, yeah. now she's not, which is kind of a sad You were asking me about, I saw Aaron Rodgers. And my, my Eric, my partner, loves Aaron Rodgers because he's, you know, a uh, Packers fan. But um, uh, I thought he did quite well. I saw one show with him hosting Jeopardy. I think he did a good job. I heard that what he that a lot of fans really like his candor that he's Mm -hmm. actually really nice and that he's really likable Mm -hmm. i've also heard that he throws in a few subtle jokes and references to celebrity jeopardy on snl i don't know what exactly he threw in but that's what i I don't remember that but yeah but i thought he did a good good job very you know very personable low-key nice charisma not you know comes across as being very bright very friendly with the guys the contestant so i liked him oh yeah and another person pointed out that he's not bad to look at either i suppose well yeah he's a nice looking guy yeah that helps yeah uh, and it's one of those things where like you know I, jeopardy is very famous for uh more for its intellectualism than anything else and i think that if you can play to played to that really well and also because i guess it wouldn't hurt to have someone like aaron Rodgers to be sort of like a new fresh face right. on there and it, and it could it might bring some new fans to jeopardy who might not otherwise have checked it out you know that's true and also i think that jeopardy is one of those shows where it's always about it's open-minded enough to reinvent itself even Mm -hmm. the questions you know a question in 1980 would not be the same as today and they i mean they throw in some pop culture i mean i love it because it's very educational it's you know you have to rock your brain but they throw in some pop culture stuff and some movie stuff and occasionally some pop music it's not all you know history and battles you know it's a mix oh yeah and you know what i love about and it's one of those things where i think people like Aaron Rodgers can really like succeed and I like the fact that they're doing guest hosts because it's nice to see who could be the permanent replacement Mm -hmm. now some people are saying that maybe let's try out a few other people before we decide on Aaron Rodgers but it seems that he is the presumptive favorite for some people yeah I mean I'd like to see a few more to check in now I I I know his name was thrown around, but I don't know. Is is Anderson Cooper on the list of proposed guests? I list? had heard, but I wasn't sure. To I be like him. I'd like to see him do it for a week, you know, check I, it out. You know, the funny thing is I would even throw in like, um, you know, I've even said very jokingly, like maybe a Rachel Maddow just to see how that would have worked. Oh, I'd love to see her. I don't <laughs> think she'd do it, but I would lo- I love Rachel. I'd love to see her. Do it. I think she's too busy, but um, so she'd be great. <laughs> she'd, she'd be, be great. great. And then also... Um, there's just so many interesting people you can put on there, but it's it strikes me as interesting that the a person known for football, Aaron Rodgers, mm-hmm. would be one of the standouts. Mm-hmm. And because you because some of the other people like who have television, um, I'm going to say quotations, charisma like mm-hmm. Dr. Oz, don't quite hit it. No. It's interesting how yeah. that man's been on television for years yeah. and decades, but not it's quite. weird. It's it's almost like a a, a, a 
you just don't know what it is. It's just the it factor, and you're not quite sure. What, it just has to be a combination of, yeah, uh, looking good, looking good on camera, being smart, coming across as being intelligent, come across as being uh, jovial with the, the guests, uh, and just it's a combination of things, yeah. And I wanted to ask you, since you watch Jeopardy more than I do, have you seen a guest host where you were, like, really excited for them, and then it wasn't as great as you had hoped it would be? Um, you know... I, I'm not sure if that's exact, but I, I, I saw Katie Kirk and I thought she did a nice job. I don't see her as being the choice. Um, and I like Katie Kirk, but, um, you know, she's so perky and smiling. Let's, let's play Jeff. You know, I like her and she wasn't, she did a bad job. I just don't see her as the, the permanent host. Um, you that, know, that is the best way to put it for her. Cause like I saw a few of her episodes, mm-hmm. I saw one bit of an episode and i thought Mm -hmm. she's likable on this show but i don't think she's the right fit for it yeah i don't think she's the right fit and even midwin charles which i was surprised wasn't on the list but unfortunately you know she doesn't have that opportunity anymore but i'm surprised she wasn't and i also wanted to name drop just because because you know he passed away too dmx dmx is a famous rapper he is he is someone that is well known for adding a lot of aggressivity to his music and pretty recently his music got a bit of a boost because on a television show called Rick and Morty they use his music in a backdrop of a scene where a group of characters beat up a Nazi. Now is this just that's an animated show isn't it? Yes. Yeah okay. It's an animated series and it's one of those shows that if you really loved shows like Family Guy, you would love shows like Rick and Morty, but Rick and Morty is a much more intelligent show. And so for me, Rick and Morty has always had a good ear for music. Mm -hmm. And so when they use DMX's X Gonna Give It To You, which is a very aggressive song, but you know what I think is interesting about DMX is that that song in itself doesn't have a lot of cuss words. And Mm -hmm. rap music is sort of has this... Known for that. Known for that. And you know... Other types of music is known for that too, like pop music. But I think rap music has a stigma that it's so mm-hmm. aggressive. Like I think earlier this um, this show we talked about Little Nas X's video, and it was provocative. But when you listen to the song, there's hardly any cuss words in it, mm-hmm. which you know surprisingly back in the day, having cuss words in a song would get you a whole Senate trial. <laughs> <Do> you- <laughs> Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? Oh, yeah. With um, Twisted Sis. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, DM, now DMX, he's the one, wasn't he was in the hospital for a while hanging on and then then he passed, right? Was it a drug thing or an overdose or something? What was the... I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. But like, wasn't he in the hospital for a few days before he passed? I thought I saw that. Yes. And his family was holding a vigil and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yes, it was exactly that. And uh, it's one of those things where, like... I actually really like DMX. Like, surprisingly, like, I actually was surprised by, like, the fact that I don't listen to a lot of rap music myself. But when I was listening to it, I thought, you know what? I've actually heard these songs somehow. Like, somehow I was able to listen to these. And according to this, it was possibly from a drug overdose and that he lost a lot of function in his essential organs. But, you know, Mm -hmm. with celebrities, drug overdoses, you know, it's always a tragedy because it's one of those things where you kind of have to realize like you know with all this fame and money that there's still a human underneath and still yeah it doesn't just because you're rich and famous doesn't necessarily protect you from all that stuff nope and the and the sad thing is drugs are more accessible to you when you're rich you can get whatever you want yeah and it's such a tragedy but 
you know, rest in peace, Midwin, Charles, and DMX, and good luck to any future guest hosts on Jeopardy, since we spent a good time talking yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, I'll be interested to see who else they get on there and, and who they end up with. When we come back, I'm so excited, my friend Siobhan, Siobhan Velarde, we're doing a show of Bosom Buddies, we're going to talk to her in a little bit on The Culture Corner. Yeah. 